one podcast to rule them all. One podcast to find them. One podcast to bring them all. And in the darkness, find them. The game is on, Watson. I've got a bad feeling about this. What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the podcast guy? I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid, unless you made of scissors. <laughs> Just a little rock, paper, scissors joke for you. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. I am genre podcast. It's all genre to me. We're gonna need a bigger podcast. We could have been killed, or worse, podcasted. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. I am Groot. We named the Monkey Podcast. Amazing. Amazing. Hello, everyone. Hello. And welcome to <laughs> It's All Genre to Me. I am your host, Rachel Baldwin, and I'm here with your co host, Rebecca Glazer. Hello. We made it. We made it. We're Can here. You freaking believe it. Oh my gosh. I, I can't. almost can't. <laughs> this is the first episode of our first series where we're going to be talking about this week. We're going to be talking about Moon Knight. But in general, we're going to be talking about all sorts of genre film and TV. Do you do you have any input on what what is genre, Rebecca? Well, it's all genre to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need the soundboard for like, ah. <laughs> Get some claps in there. I think that to say, oh, genre is just, genre is trash, or genre is formulaic, or genre is just kind of a, the stuff that has no thought behind it. But I think anything that's genre is a specific set of tropes or expectations that just come out of a fan base loving a particular type of movie or film, and there's certain things that they want to see, and certain things that are influenced by a legacy of similar books or movies or shows and I think that that can be true of superhero shows and that can also be true of heroes journeys that are based on the odyssey genre can be literary so we don't we don't make any uh any judgments here it's all genre we don't yeah genre I think when people think of genre they do think of like you know especially like romance, like specific kinds of things that really lend themselves to being interpreted through this lens of like, that is, you know, I feel like, what's her name? Like Nora Roberts, where mm -hmm. it's like, oh, that is all the Scottish genre. You know what I mean? This like, you know, certain time period piece, period pieces, vampires, all sorts of high fantasy, and all these things sort of play into these recurring themes and they become genre because people who continue to make content about those themes will reuse those things because they were, they were great tropes. They worked, they were fun and they got audiences excited. And now they've become like integral to totally. these kinds of films. Yeah. I feel like there's, there's almost like a checklist that you can make of like certain components that 
you know, any good romance, you know, needs to have a meet cute and it needs to have some sort of, you know, big conflict. And there's got to be like certain beats that, that readers are going to want to see. Yeah. And I think it's so fun when you fulfill upon those things too. Like, I don't think everything needs to be like groundbreaking or subversive. Like sometimes I just want you to do the, like, you know, there's something scary following me. And so we're looking at this scene in a steady cam or on a hand cam, or, you know, you're looking around in the corners and you're seeing shadows. Like you're not showing me the monster yet. That is some of the best parts of genre films. When you, as the audience feel like you had the same thought of how that should happen. Yes, I completely agree. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but one of my biggest pet peeves is when people talk about like transcending genre. And I'm like, that just means that you're a snob and you don't like the genre and you think that you're paying a writer a compliment by saying that they've somehow, you know, left the genre behind. It's like, if they're making a movie about a monster, it's a monster movie. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. It can be a really good monster movie. But that doesn't mean it's no longer a monster movie just because it's a good one. I know. And I I think it's so exciting when you see good genre film that is bringing the rest of the genre up. Because I think especially when people think of genre films, they think about like TV and movies that are so straightforward and thoughtless and like people who haven't really studied the genre enough where it's like, oh yeah, I've seen superhero films. And it's like, yeah, you saw like the doldrums of like, you know, the 2010s where they were just going beat for beat, like not really, there's not enough story, there's not enough development. And frankly, there's sometimes not even enough of the genre. Yeah. And I'm like, if you have a superhero movie that there's no superhero-y parts, if there's not punchy, punchy tight suits, what are we doing here? Well, and I think you touched on something important, which is that, you know, there's genre, which is kind of the the content of it, and maybe there's some of the structure, but there also still has to be the other good parts of writing, like the character development and, you know, rising and falling action. That I is know independent of genre. And I think sometimes sometimes movies that rely too heavily on genre forget that they also have to, you know, have characters that we care about. I know. I am kind of feeling that way about um the pi- the gay pirates show on HBO. No, Are you watching this no. one? I you know Is that the one with Taika? Yes. Oh. He I mean, I think I hope it's a it's I hope it's a network problem that like the network saw what we do in the shadows and Wellington Paranormal and they were like, We want that show, but with pirates. Just put mm. like a pirate's lens on it. And I'm not getting enough other things other than pirate clothes. Mm. Like it's like just kind of a shitty NBC sitcom with pirates. And I just, I want so much more. What, what about it is uniquely pirates? Yeah. And I'm not getting that yet, but I'm only a few episodes in. So I'm, I'm hoping, but I'm like, come on, Taika, you can bring the genre with you. You know what I mean? Like pirates of the Caribbean. I'm sorry to say it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. We love Captain Jack. Love him. We do. The guy who plays him? Never heard of him. (laughs) Who? The character is his own person. The character is his own person. So, what we're going to be doing on this podcast is discussing genre TV and films and how they fit into their greater genre, 
genre films as a whole, what else is happening at that time, like contemporaneously, you know, we love to have tons of background knowledge about comics and studios and actors and who said what to who and what was in their writers. And um, that's going to be the freaking show. Do you have anything to add? Let's do it. This week, we will be talking about Moon Knight. So let me just, uh, let me introduce Moon Knight here. People want to know. How can I live like this? The risks, the blood I've spilled, the times I've descended into madness, the times I've died. Hell, how can I live like this? How can I live any other way? Moon Knight, Volume 5, Book 1. Mark Spector, better known as the Vigilante Moon Knight, first appeared in 1975 in the book Werewolf by Night, written by Doug Mensch and Don Perlinance. Spectre was a mercenary left for dead in the desert, where he was revived by the moon god Konchu. Appointed as Konchu's first and high priest, Moon Knight enacted justice to protect those who travel at night. Mark has dissociative identity disorder and believes himself to also be a man named Stephen Grant and a cab driver, Jake Lockley. Moon Knight is one of only a handful of Jewish Marvel characters, being the son of a rabbi in the comics. This month we bring to you Moon Knight. Okay, great. Well, I guess that's it. Now we're talking about Moon Knight. Now we're talking about Moon Knight. <laughs> I have been so excited about this show for such a long time, ever since I heard it was coming out, because Moon Knight's Jewish, and so am I. And wow. I'm obsessed with the MCU. Wow. And it's, like, shocking. You're what? <laughs> In case anyone didn't know, I'm Jewish talk about it all the time um, she's jewish and she loves the mcu and she absolutely wears these two things on her sleeve yeah, she's I'm, almost always wearing some jewish apparel and some comics apparel i am i am currently wearing my marvel sock my westview shirt and my star of david necklace that's pretty much what i dress in every day yeah um i am honestly sh- so shocked that moon knight is going to be hopefully the first jewish superhero that marvel has because, like, all the writers who created Marvel Comics were Jewish. The owner of Timely Comics that became Marvel was Jewish. Stan Lee, Jewish. Jack Kirby, Jewish. There's, there's wow. all a bunch of Jewish dudes. Guys who invented wow. Superman were also Jewish, but that's you know, wow. DC, obviously. I know. Jews invented comics. And yet they didn't make any of their superheroes Jewish, which is so sad to me. But it was also, like right after world war ii and i think they didn't want to be like identified openly as jewish because i thought that people wouldn't want to read their comics so pretty sad but um yeah they also weren't trying to make moon knight jewish they just realized at a certain point that mark specter sounded very jewish and Mm -hmm. you know credit to them they were like yeah all right let's go for it and they yeah hired a guy who was the principal of a yeshiva which is like a jewish boys religious school and he, okay. he took over the comics and mm-hmm. made Mark's dad a rabbi. Um, I honestly kind of wish they were doing this in the show. Maybe we'll get this in season two. But there's one villain that he fights named Zohar, which, if you don't know, is the name of, like, a Jewish mystical text. Um, and so it is, like, one of the most, sounds like, Jewish plots you could possibly imagine. So maybe they didn't want to go too hard, but hey, there's only season two. And so um, will you just speak a little more on what other Jewish characters we have 
not in the MCU, but sort of like in the Marvel universe and specifically other properties and cinematic universes? Yeah. So we did have one other kind of Jewish character in like the extended Marvel multiverse. Um, Mm -hmm. Magneto famously Mm -hmm. is a Holocaust survivor. And I was kind of surprised. We were just rewatching all of the X-Men movies and I had forgotten that both X-Men and first class open with scenes that take place at a concentration camp, which to me is so fascinating because it feels like it's really setting up Magneto as kind of the main character of those stories. Yes. Like he is the one we open with, um, which is just so interesting that they then continue to like insist on making him a villain, which is to me why, you know, I would love to see some other Jewish representation that's not just a villain. Yes. Even though he is probably one of like the most compelling characters in terms of his motivations and backstory. I know. I mean, he does seem to be like one of the most like fleshed out characters. Yeah. And so I do in some ways like think he is the main character. Because if you were to be like, especially the first three X-Men, if you were to ask me who the main characters were, I do think it's Professor X and Magneto. Totally. Like it's not, it's just not Wolverine or phoenix you know it's not those other people Mm -mm. no they're kind of like the point of view characters like rogue especially Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i think i mean the story is really driven by magneto like he is the one with the like strongest motivation he's the one with the actual plan and they're just kind of trying to stop him which to me is why they did him such a disservice in the last stand he should have been the hero all of his prophecies 100%. came true and it should have been about him like, you know, being right for once. But I know. And especially, yeah, I was going to say the way he handled his relationship with, um, oh my God, what's her name? Blue Mystique. lady. Foots all around. Mystique. Yeah. She got screwed. But we'll save that because I actually think um, That's we're going to have to do an X-Men series. <laughs> we're going to have to do... Yeah, we've been watching the X-Men and some of them we're seeing them for the first time. I'm seeing them for the first time. And it's been really exciting. And some of the X-Men are just so good. Also, here's my new pitch. Just saying it to the people. Let Daniel Radcliffe be Wolverine. Please. Oh my God. He's such a short and hairy guy. (laughs) And he looks angry these days. He's mad. He's sick of being Harry Potter. He's fucking 30 years old. He'd rock the claw. Yeah, set him free. Plus, I think so, he could look really good with that, you know, that hairstyle. He would look so good. Oh, my God. His chops would be so Oh, my big. God. Oh, my God. Okay, so I don't want to dwell on the X-Men any longer. We've got a flight to catch. We're going to spoiler country. <laughs> we gotta go. This is your captain speaking. We will be beginning our descent into spoiler country. The local time is spoiler o'clock. Please use caution as you listen on because, as I said, it's all spoilers from here. All right. So, Moon Knight, episode one. We open not with Moon Knight himself, but with Arthur Harrow, an incredibly creepy cult leader who puts glass in his shoes. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you noticed the sound effect every time he walked around. It reminded me of Batman's little clanking boots, but you hear the glass crunch just so softly every time he walks the whole episode. Horrible. 
oh my god horrible. i was sitting there going it's not real it's not real it's not real because oh it's so gross but no. amazing they deserve opening. an emmy for sound design truly yeah. amazing yes he is this kind of cult leader type person who worships the egyptian goddess amit who mm-hmm. was i think exiled from the rest of the pantheon of gods because she wanted to devour the world mm-hmm. or in this context wants to devour the souls of people who will sin or like will not be worthy of um a good afterlife and so he's judging people prematurely but we'll get to that so then we meet Stephen Grant who is the one of the personas that will be Moon Knight and he is working at this gift shop at a museum in London he just he wants so badly to be a tour guide and his boss is so mean to him and throughout this episode we just we watch him kind of go through these his routine I guess of chaining himself to the bed at night and you know locking up his door and putting tape on the door because he uh wanders and you know what he thinks is sleepwalking I don't know if this is a very good recap I feel like I'm just rambling but (laughs) no this is this is going great I was actually gonna say like I just am so impressed even when you're recounting it because like to me, act one, you know, this, there's like the story spine. It's the perfect and every day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, because we could have just gotten an every day, this guy is a loser and works at a museum, but they do all these like really small signaling things, which like they set up one, the villain and every day he cuts his little feet on glass. Horrible. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. But then every day, Steven goes and it looks insane in his own house and he's so weird and lonely and I was just like the, they're doing so much heavy lifting with just this like shot of a piece of tape on the door yeah where you're like he wants so hard to not be sleepwalking yeah yeah Stephen works at this museum he's got his little one one finned fish that he feeds he's got uh-huh. his his only friend that he seems like he can really talk to is a guy who dresses up as a gold painted statue in the park. Uh-huh. And Steven is so sweet. He like brings him food, tips him, gets other people to tip yeah. him. Yeah. He's like Don't a, forget to tip. <laughs> he's like such a great guy, but also just like so sad. He like has a hot date with one of his coworkers that he doesn't remember planning. They're supposed to go get steak. Um, but then we kind of start to see it all unravel as he wakes up in his other, well, not, not wakes up in his other persona, but Mark Spector has taken over the body and then Stephen Grant reawakens and discovers that he's, I don't know, where in Austria, something. Some... Yes. I actually thought they maybe are in Scandinavia. Oh. I have heard spo- even more spoilers, spoiler speculation that that might be Dr. Doom's castle. Interesting. Very interesting. We'll keep that in mind. Well, he ends up in some European hilly locale and uh, is apparently in the process of stealing this golden scarab from Arthur Harrow, the crazy cult leader, and his lackeys. And he ends up in a couple chases. He ends up in a car chase in a cupcake truck. 
And I truly was not expecting this episode to be so funny, but the physical comedy of him like shoving cupcakes in a dude's face, he like breaks the car really fast and the like big cupcake on the top of the truck rolls off. And it's just like, there's no music. It's just silent. Just the sound of the cupcakes on the road. It's so good. And Kanshu, we start to hear his voice too. And he keeps telling Steven, give the body over to Mark, give the body over to Mark. And he also keeps saying a couple times, oh, great. The idiot's back in charge. Yes. I was also not expecting Kanshu to be funny. But the episode kind of, each time he reawakens, it does this like juddering little effect. And Mm -hmm. we see this jump but we don't actually ever see Mark in control or Kanchu in control. We right. only ever see right. it from Steven's perspective. So right. it cuts when he loses consciousness and it comes back and he's in a completely different place. His hands are bloody. He's got a gun. He doesn't know what's going on. Oscar Isaac's acting is impeccable. So I well know. done. I know. But we finally end up, he wakes up back in his bed. He thinks, oh, thank God this has all been a dream. But then he starts to kind of see the hole in his life. So he goes to this restaurant to have his steak dinner and calls the girl because she's not showing up. And it's two days later. And then he comes back to the apartment and suddenly his one finned goldfish has two fins. We don't know what that's Mm -hmm. about yet. And so he takes it to the pet store and he's freaking out. He's like, what's going on here? And she's like, ha ha, very funny. You were in here yesterday. And he's like, I wasn't in here yesterday. And so we start to see that okay, these are not dreams. Mark Spector is living in Stephen Grant's body in his apartment. Oh, he gets a phone. He finds a phone hidden in his wall. burner phone. Yeah, Yeah. which was a Motorola Motorola Razor. Loved it. (laughs) And he's gotten a ton of missed calls from some girl named Layla who calls him Mark. He's like, why did you call me Mark? And... Oh, also this whole time he's been calling someone that he thinks is his mother and leaving her voicemails every day and saying, you know, sorry, mm-hmm. I missed you again. Who is he calling? I hope we find out. I'm so curious. What if it's nobody? What if it's nobody? What if it's some random woman? <laughs> I don't know. I'm fascinated. No. There, I felt like there were so many little clues that were dropped that I'm going to want to go back and watch the series over again after it ends. But I agree. Because- I agree. Okay, so I have... Oh, you finish. Oh, yeah. You so I was going to say, so the climax of the episode is he ends up back at the museum. Arthur Harrow shows up. Steven realizes, oh, my God, this was not a dream. This guy is real. He ends up having this confrontation with this guy. This guy has, like, a, a scale tattoo Mm -hmm. that weighs scales of justice yeah weighs people's souls and it can't make a conclusion about mark or steven it just kind of like bounces you've got chaos in you and uh then he thinks it's okay this guy is gone until this like really creepy dog from hell starts chasing him at night and yeah night in the museum he's being chased around and uh finally is like "Ah, we don't know who the dog is it's like way more scary than the scene actually seems to be like yes got very doctor who like running from the daleks kind of vibe like we know he's gonna be okay but the thing he's running from is actually very creepy looking um yes and finally he ends up in this bathroom he's talking to mark in the mirror and conju's like give the body to mark 
And we then finally, the very last shot, we see the mummy wrappings come and take him. And then we just see him fucking wailing on this dog. And then he turns around and looks at the camera and it cuts to the credits. And my mind exploded. It was amazing. It was, so it was truly, I, I want to say one of the best Marvel pilots that I've ever seen, especially because this is the first introduction of Moon Knight into the universe. Yeah. So this is a brand new IP, a brand new rendition of this character. And this script had to do so much because all the other major TV shows have been sort of taking IP that has been developed in the movies and bringing it to television and sort of being like, okay, you have this high level understanding of the character, but we're going to zoom in. And so this is such a great, because it actually feels like a real TV pilot, like not an adaptation, not a supplemental show. This is like, Disney is actually trying to make real and exciting genre TV for their stupid little Marvel heads like us. I completely agree. And I think that maybe this is where genre can sometimes rest on its laurels. Like, because you're right, that all the other shows that we've gotten so far have included at least one main character who is from the movies. We had Loki, we had Falcon and Winter Soldier, we had Wanda and Vision. Even Hawkeye, I mean, Kate Bishop was new, but Hawkeye is Hawkeye. We all know him. And so maybe right. they thought that, like, you yeah, know, we all know Jeremy Renner's character really well. He's yeah. so developed. We're already, well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we're already at least invested in these characters. And so they don't necessarily yeah. have to use the first episode to hook us. But I yeah. think with Moon Knight, they really were like, okay, we're introducing a completely new character. We really have to sell this. And I think they absolutely did. Yeah, I agree. And I, yeah, I just thought it was so exciting. And, um, you know, I hope it continues at this pace because I think, for example, WandaVision had such an exciting pilot Mm. and it was so weird and experimental. And they went and they steered out of that skid. Like they like were like, okay, it's a weird show. It's a weird show. And then they were like, no, it's the classic Marvel procedural, like, you know, shield or whatever, not sword is coming in to sort this out. And there is still a regular villain. The villain is not grief and like, or, you know, the villain is not inside you the whole time. Like there were all these more complicated and more interesting choices that they could have made. And that seemed like they were being set up to be made that they didn't make. Um, And so one of the things that I'm thinking about in terms of Moon Knight is that we have pretty much only been seeing this character from Steven's perspective. Yeah. And that is so exciting to me because it just, it it maintains my like interest and confusion about what's happening to this character. Like we feel just as scared that like someone else is haunting and occupying our bodies. Yeah. Like that is such, such a hard thing to reconcile and to understand And I think if we had seen that, we would be like, oh, we know Mark. Mark takes care of the body. Like, Mark's a good guy. He's just trying to communicate with Steven. And at this point, we don't really sympathize with Mark at all. We're like, fuck Mark. Steven is my best friend. He's a little loser guy that needs a little help understanding his personalities. He just likes chocolate. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, but whoever did his makeup during that chocolate scene, I'm sorry, straight to jail. 
No one would get chocolate all over their face like that from just eating pieces. Maybe he maybe he missed a little. He just forgot he where missed his mouth. a lot. He was just like <laughs> smacking it against his face. Like he took one bite, gets the gooey part going. I mean, maybe maybe it was supposed to indicate he had a little meltdown. He got a little choco smacko in there. Oh my god! But no, I agree with you, and I think that I I have a bad habit of reading too many you know interviews and watching trailer breakdowns and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I, I get too invested in what's being said about the show, but I really hope that, I, I think it was the director who described it as, maybe it's Oscar Isaac, as psychological horror. And I think uh-huh. we're going to want to talk more kind of as we see more episodes about whether or not they stay true to that genre. Because I think that like with WandaVision, Marvel has this tendency to kind of set up like it's going to be a certain type of genre but then when we finally get to the conclusion and the climax it has to fulfill the superhero tropes rather than the tropes of any other genre and i yes marvel comes back to their own genre yes they are their own genre exactly and i think that i really hope that they stay true to this idea of like you know the real the real monster or the real source of horror is this like you know disassociation and this like being a stranger in your own body rather than you know having having it have to come to I mean there can still be a climactic battle and he can fight Arthur Harrow and there's you know room for that I think in what they're setting up but sure I do hope that they they keep it creepy I agree and I'm really curious to see when they're going to introduce us to Mark Spector because Mm -hmm. I think it was such a good pilot choice to keep us only as Stephen Grant right yeah but I know there is another character that is like one of his most popular um, alternate egos, which is um, Mr. Knight, Jake Lockley. But I'm like, is the TV show going to, you know, because I don't want them to bite off more more than they can chew. So I'm like, do they have multiple personalities? Like, you know, more than just two. Do they have three, four, five? Because I was also wondering if that's why Oscar, Oscar Isaac made this choice to do this English accent Mm -hmm. um, because he wasn't going to, but I wonder if he was struggling to identify which character was which and how to like figure out for himself, how to embody those different characters. Because I think like, especially one of the things that I've learned most about improvising is like your character has to have a perspective. Like you have to make a singular choice and like that choice doesn't have to be a lot, but it like has to virtue signal a lot And so, you know, like, even if you're standing at a bus stop, like, what are you doing? Like, are you looking at your phone? Are you taking a drag out of a cigarette? Are you taking a long drag out of a cigarette? You know, are you, like, looking over your shoulder? And so I think, like, once you start to make all those choices, you're like, okay, well, there's only so many physical choices I can make, which I do think Stephen Grant had such a distinctive gait. There was, like, one point where there's, like, a wide shot and they had pulled back, and I was like, that is not how Oscar Isaac walks. Oscar Isaac walks differently. That is Stephen Grant's walk. And he has like spent so much time. He's just an amazing actor. Most of my notes are he's such an amazing actor. And I was just wondering if he's like, okay, I've made three choices already. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I need to make another choice. That's all. That's I'm just, I'm just thinking about that. Yeah, I thought that all of the choices he made in terms of really embodying that character were, yeah, he, he became Stephen Grant. And I think that yes. he, 
you know, I, I think a lot of hay has been made about, you know, oh, if the character is going to be Jewish, Oscar Isaac isn't Jewish, but then people are like, well, he has Sephardic ancestry, and it's like, but he went to a Christian school and was raised Christian. It's like, personally, I, I could not care less. I know that's not a popular opinion, but like, he is an amazing actor, and he is perfect yeah. for his character, and I... I truly don't care whether he's Jewish or not, whether he identifies as Jewish, whether he's Jewish by blood, like does not matter. He is perfect for this role. Yeah, I I agree. But I also think I was still surprised that they picked, because I believe, I don't want to misspeak here. I believe Oscar Isaac's background is he's, he's like Argentinian or something. Um, let's see. Oh, he's um okay, he was born in Guatemala um and he has a Cuban father. Mm. And I think this might be the last time that Marvel can cast someone who is not that race to play that race. And I'm not sure how much the Egyptian thing is going to come forward. Um I mean, obviously Moon Knight is Egyptian, mm-hmm. like this like the Egyptian part of the superhero. Um, but I also thought it was just such a cool setting to have it be in the Egyptian museum. Yeah. Um, you know, just a really good choice for visual continuity and like, okay, if we are in contemporary life, you know, where do we see him? And it's like, oh, we see him still among the pharaohs and he knows all this history. And I love that he would know the history because he's Egyptian and yet they still don't want him to be a tour guide because they think he's weird or annoying or whatever. Well, and I don't know if he himself is meant to be Egyptian, um, but I think that I I think I thought the choice to set it in the British Museum was fascinating because I think that it I and I hope they explore this, but it really sets up this you know tension of like everything that's in the British Museum was looted, like everything that is there that is an Egyptian artifact was stolen from Egypt. And so then you have this guy who I think is not Egyptian, who is an, a mercenary, Mark Spector, ends up in Egypt and somehow became the avatar of an Egyptian god. I think that I hope that they explore kind of the like greater implications of that, that like, you know, maybe this is his punishment for trying to loot Egyptian artifacts or that there is somehow this greater I don't know, exploration of like, what does it mean for British people or American people to go to Egypt and just kind of get their little grubby little hands on everything? I agree. And um, there is a really good ride that is in Disney Shanghai, I believe, Mm. um, that is a version of the Haunted Mansion, essentially, where a spirit that has been colonized is brought back in like a token into this mansion and that's what it's haunted with um and as you ride the ride you essentially are looking over the shoulders of a colonizer who is about to be killed in his own home by these spirits incredible and yeah i uh i hope that somehow something like that happens but the problem is that like i mean not i don't want to knock museum people museum people i think are not our greatest enemy you know yeah maybe we sort of need Mark Spector to do a little, you know, time turner and go and get those guys, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I hope he, I hope he can be become, I don't know, the defender of I I agree. I'm I'm curious about this 
scarab that is kind of the object of the conflict between himself and Arthur Harrow. And I assume that Harrow wants to use it in some way for some sort of diabolical plot. And I'm curious because it kind of seemed, I, I think Stephen seemed to understand it as, you know, people are calling me a mercenary and I have this artifact in my pocket. I must have stolen it. I must be the bad guy. I want to give it back. And I'm wondering if he, in his role as the avatar of Konshu, is actually trying to prevent that artifact from being looted or in some way prevent it from being used for evil. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think Moon Knight is going to be like so much more of, I don't want to call him an anti-hero, mm-hmm. but like just, uh, he, st- he does not have that morally ambiguous of a role you know what i mean i thought he was more like a little villainous um because i think in the comics you know he's like fighting the avengers and like he has all these problems with the characters that we identify as the heroes but in his main story since he's not fighting people that we identify with as heroes and ethan Hawke's character is clearly a villain that mark specter is going to be the hero in his own story which i think is great i think we're, I'm really excited about that, but I am curious how they reconcile that with the fact that, like, Moon Knight seems to come from a long history of, like, being a difficult and self-important and kind of through villainous means kind of character. Yeah. I also, I want to go back to the their choice to introduce him first as Stephen Grant, because my understanding is that, you know, Mark Spector is the primary identity, and uh-huh. Stephen Grant is in some ways a a refuge in his mind that you know when things are too difficult as mark he you know takes on the persona of stephen grant who in the comics is very wealthy and non-jewish and that he can kind of like have this shield almost as like a, a more privileged you know more important more you know powerful yeah. identity and yeah. it was so interesting to see Stephen Grant, A, portrayed as kind of a loser, but also uh-huh. to have that introduced first, because I think that makes me, you know, I would be very sad if he, you know, somehow got his multiple personalities under control and then was only Mark Spector again, and we never got to see, we, we killed Stephen Grant. That would be devastating. Yes. I mean, that's what scares me about feeling like I don't totally trust Disney yeah. with this IP to make the best most complicated choice which Mm -hmm. is that like to me like when we're talking about this as a pilot and being like this is such an amazing and everyday hero's journey until then that to me you can't introduce the hero and every day and have the finale be about mark like they are going to have to like revive Stephen Grant and be like okay you're gonna be amazing and you're somehow gonna be the hero in your own story and I'm curious to see if they're gonna bring Mark Spector into the season early Mm -hmm. because I was actually kind of hoping that I'm like if this is because I heard that this is maybe gonna be a limited series and I'm like they've said that about a lot of Disney shows that now they're like and we'll do a second season um because I would love for this to be a multi-season series and for the first season to be all about Stephen Grant and him reconciling with what if I am the villain the whole time? Like, mm-hmm. what if the, you know, horror was inside me? And then in that six episode arc, resolving that and coming to terms with Mark, 
who can then be the hero of the second season. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't, I don't want to say I don't want to hear Mark's story because I do. But I, I want us to say focus on what we just introduced so well. Yeah, and I think that that maybe brings us to the question of like, what makes a good pilot? And I think that yeah, in some ways they did the absolute right thing, which was a pilot has to invest us. It has to get us interested in the character. And so it has to give us, you know, a taste of like, you know, what is their life? And like, what are they, what are they about? What are they motivated by? And I think Stephen Grant comes off as so sweet because his motivation is really, he just wants to be a tour guide. Like he really loves Egypt and he wants to be able to share his knowledge. And he's got this asshole boss who won't let him do that. But yeah. he's caught up in like, you know, the the bigger and grander things. And I think that, you know, cutting off right at the end where he we see him become Moon Knight is like the perfect cliffhanger to be like, okay, there is so much more to come than what we've just seen, but we care about him enough that we want to keep watching. And I thought that it was just it was perfectly paced. They had so much that went on. All the scenes were so tight. But yes, I think that the danger with that is that if they, you know, when you're setting the pilot, you're setting up your dominoes. Like that is Mm -hmm. your introduction to act one. And if act three just kind of goes off in a completely different direction and doesn't fulfill the Mm -hmm. promises that were made at the very beginning, it's going to be disappointing. Like it's going to be disappointing if, you know, Stephen Grant doesn't get some form of his wish fulfilled like maybe he doesn't become a tour guide but maybe he gets to live in Egypt like that would be yeah like that would be yeah. a fulfillment of that promise yes okay one quick thing yes I looked it up I think you're right Mark Spector is not Egyptian I was trying to figure it out because I've seen like oh Moon Knight is Egyptian and they mean like the mummy guy is yeah. Egyptian and mm-hmm. I'm like well I know but I thought one of his special Egyptian descendants would get to be the mummy guy mm-hmm. Konshu just picked a guy. He just picked a guy, which to me is so interesting. And I can see that when it was being written in like the 80s or 70s or whenever he was introduced as being like a very kind of like colonizer type thing. Like, oh yeah, the white dude discovered him and now he gets to be yes. the, the thing. But I hope that yes. they complicate that. And it's like, yeah, the white dude found him and disturbed him and now he's got a pin price and have yes. his identity fractured and all this stuff. Yes, what if, I, I mean, because I love in the comics like, how many sort of different like offshoots they can have about things. And I'm like, what if, for example, there was an Egyptian guy who had Khonshu and relieved himself of Khonshu because Mm -hmm. it was a burden. And so now there's this like sort of inverse reality to Mark Spector of like, oh God, there's this other guy who didn't want it. And so is this a blessing or is it a curse to be Moon Knight? Because it's prohibitively difficult or something. Right. And I think I think that is maybe what makes him kind of an antihero is that it's kind of both like thinking about yeah. the, you know, we just watched No Way Home and the way that Green Goblin talks about, you know, these this isn't a curse, it's a gift. Like he sees his power, even though it makes him crazy as a gift, you know, but he's yeah. not necessarily using it for good. But I think that was a yeah. really interesting distinction for them to try and draw of like you know, at what point is power a gift or a curse? And if it's both, you know, what does that make you? Does it make you a hero or a villain? Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the coolest things about Moon Knight is that with his different personalities, it seems like the chaos in you is indicating that he's not a hero or a villain. He's Mm -hmm. both. Yeah. 
chaotic neutral. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also think it would be really interesting that because when you see that scene, you think, I know who the hero is. It's Steven. And I know who the villain is. It's Mark Spector Moon Knight. But what if they continue to complicate that? And they're like, no, Mark Spector and Moon Knight are like correcting the wrongs mm. of colonizers in the world. And Stephen Grant is the one that offers this like chaotic neutral of constantly providing resistance to what is otherwise the right thing. I think that's interesting. And so then at the end, you're like, oh, what if Stephen Grant wasn't the good guy? You know, not a bad guy, but not the good guy. Right. Right. He's just the guy who's getting in the way. The idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Also. Idiot has the body again. (laughs) Um, I was just remembering that Oscar Isaac did describe Mark Spector in an interview as like a Jewish Chicago guy. So. It yes. does seem like Mark Spector is, you know, at least is a developed enough character in Oscar Isaac's mind that he knows where he's from. He knows kind of what he's about, um, which maybe indicates that we will actually see kind of some scenes from his perspective. Oh, my God. I hope he's eating some hot dogs. That's all I have to say. I love hot dogs. I hope Mark Spector does, too. As a Chicago guy, a good chili dog. More heroes eat hot dogs. More That's the story. Hot dogs. Hebrew National. Yes. I mean, they're good. They're good. Okay. That's good hot dogs. So I did want to talk about the Jewish representation in Moon Knight because there was none in yes. this first episode. Yes. Zero. Except the one thing that made me prick up my ears, which I had very mixed feelings about, was the moment where Arthur Harrow is talking to Stephen Grant. And he is basically trying to argue why, you know, his side of things is correct he's making his moral case for why he's not really the mm-hmm. villain why mm-hmm. he sees himself as the protagonist and he's saying that you know if you know if you knew that someone was going to do a bad thing if this is basically what is it i know uh what's that tom cruise movie um minority report it's minority report he's basically saying yes if you knew that someone was going to commit a crime why would you wait for them to commit the crime and do the harm before you stopped them and that is his argument. And so he is says to Stephen Grant, mm-hmm. there would have been no Hitler and no Holocaust. Mm-hmm. First thing he says. Yep, First thing just he says. And I'm like, does, right out the gate. No Hitler. Does he? And then he goes on to say, and no Pol Pot and no Armenian genocide. And so he lists more yep. things. But yep. he starts with that. And the emphasis kind of sits there for a second. And yes. so to me, I was like, does he somehow know that Mark Spector is Jewish? Is this just a like nod from the showrunners that this is something that I also was wondering if it's just like virtue signaling as like that is such a common discussion on like moral wrongs and rights you know like sort of a reverse trolley problem of like if you could go back in time would you kill baby Hitler like that's such kind of a classic discourse on like time travel and right and wrong and the butterfly effect that I was like I don't know if anyone even put any thought into this or if they just sort of offhandedly said like Hitler what about him and that to me is why I had such mixed feelings because I feel like the Holocaust becomes this like almost meaningless metric of like yes is it worse than the Holocaust, is it bad as the Holocaust? it's like okay but that's not like a you know 
that that's not it's not that was an event that was a real thing that happened yes millions of people were killed and I think that to say that in an offhanded way to a character that we know and acknowledge is Jewish is I really hope that the writers thought about that you know and that it wasn't just this like casual we're going to make a holocaust comparison of like Arthur Harrow killing this old woman and like Hitler I know and so I hope that they put some thought into it. But if they did put thought into it, I do wonder what they were thinking. And, you know, if that was just a, oh, we know he's Jewish and this is what he care about. Or if it was right meant to imply that Arthur Harrow somehow knows that Stephen Grant is Jewish, which I don't know how he would know. But no, I mean, but it also seems like he might know Moon Knight. Yeah. So there is a chance that he knows because I was wondering, like, if he had already been in a fight with Mark Spector, potentially for two days, right. he might have been, like, look investigating him, you know? Very true. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, maybe he was trying to bring Mark Spector's consciousness back to the surface or something, which would be right. a weird way to do it. <laughs> but... Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just, I mean, we were talking about this as being a tight script. And, like, I just, I almost can't believe how tight it is. Like, I think this is going to be one of my favorite scripts to, like, study and reference and try to understand because it adheres to so many of the rules that I'm really trying to internalize, which are, like, you know, number one with a bullet, your universe needs to have rules, but it doesn't need to explain them. And they do that so just, like, deftly. I mean, it just comes out of nowhere where you're like, okay, this guy has a tattoo and a stick. And, like, we don't explain when he got the tattoo. We don't explain how the stick works. But we see him use it one time. We see the tattoo move. We see the stick move. We see a lady die. That is, like, 30 seconds. You've just completely explained the function of this guy as the villain. Like, amazing. And, like, same thing that I was worried that as soon as I heard um, Konshu's voice, like, coming out as, like, this mega voice, I was like, this is going to be overused. I know it. Like, I know that he's just going to be like talking and, you know, commentary and blah, blah, blah. I'm self-aware. And what if I'm fucking Deadpool or whatever? No, he just uses it to say things that mean something to him and Mark. Like the idiot has the body. Give over the body. Get out the idiot. And they all, I mean, he only says like three words. Like he says almost nothing. And it just, it works perfectly. And like the same thing when like, we don't really understand what happens when he switches between Mark and Steven, but we see, you know, there's a little indication he does something with his eyes. We see it happen again intentionally yeah. in the bathroom when he's looking at Steven in the, when he's looking at Mark in the mirror. And same thing. They don't explain how he switches personalities. We don't have to do a whole story of how you learned it or the first time it happened. It just happens and the scene is just like off and running in an instant yeah there is so little exposition in terms of like expository dialogue no one explains anything to us and so instead of wasting their time on dialogue they have enough time that they can just repeat things like they use repetition to their advantage we by the third time we see mark specter's eyelid flutter or stephen grant's eyelid flutter we know exactly what's happening and no one had to yes. explain to us you know, oh, when you, you know, when Mark Spector takes over your personality, you black out and blah, blah, blah. 
we just know what's happening. And we see, you know, the thing with the tattoo and the stick two or three times too. Yeah, I just, I loved it. And especially when you don't spend time doing exposition, you can spend all of your verbal dialogue like every single word has to mean something. And so it's one thing to say like, okay, I'm spending some of my meaningful dialogue doing exposition. This guy has to explain something to us. No, he never does that. So what he gets to do is have like extremely true to life conversations that are fun and funny. Like this was so funny, by far one of the funniest Marvel TV shows I've seen. And like, I was laughing so hard when he goes into the museum and he's talking to the security guy yeah. and he's like, he's like, oh, there's, there's somebody following me. And he's like, well, who? And he's like, well, I don't know. And he's like, but whatever you do, just don't let him in. And he's like, well, don't let in who? And he's like, I don't know, guys that look like, you know, seedy or something. And he was like, well, seedy guys, this is a free museum. I let everybody in. And he's like, ha ha ha. And then she's like, oh, come on. We got to put the, we got to put the whales away. And he's like, the whales, those aren't whales. Those are, and she's like, I don't care. And it's conveying so much you know it's like conveying his confusion it's conveying his concern it's conveying how these people are not concerned or confused at all and it was just so fun as opposed to being like I don't know I think it's so much better to make choices that would happen in real life and they can come off funny or funny or scary as opposed to being like there's somebody following him. He has to be scared. And then everyone else is acting weird. And you're like, cause that's kind of the choice they make in horror movies. Yeah. You know, if this was like through the horror lens, someone would be like, what do you mean? Someone's following you. Oh my God. Are you sure? That's so scary. And it's like, well, no, that's the security guard. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Like he's not scared. He's just reacting how he would react. And so when you get those true to form things and you see those unequal, like, emotions and reactions it becomes funny and I think some people want to resist that because they're like no it's supposed to be a psychological thriller but I almost think it is more scary when you realize oh god no one even knows what he's talking about like I'm so scared for him and still laughing yeah and I I think they did such a good job of surrounding him with so many other characters to interact with that really yeah. gave us yes. a full picture of his personality. Like, I, I think from the trailers, it really came off to me like he was just kind of this, like, sad, lonely guy. But he had some pushback. Like, he had some attitude with his boss. And, like, you know, yeah. even when the that one security guard, like, two or three times called him the wrong name, you know, he corrects him. And yeah. then you see him, you know, interacting with the girl and his date doesn't go well and the conversation he has with the waiter and then his friend who he, you know, sits with in the park. And like, he just has all of these people that he, you know, is able to show us that, you know, he's, you know, seen as very inept and unreliable, but he, there's part of him that has like a little fire in him and he doesn't want to be seen that way and he wants to prove mm-hmm. himself. And, but then when he yeah. is like given a chance and he blows it and he knows that he's blown it, like he cries and he's chocolates and it's just like oh so sweet. And I think that they did such a good job of like just showing the way that he relates to the world around him. Also, I think that thinking about this in the context of other superheroes shows movies properties ip something a comparison that i was not expecting to make was to venom and mm-hmm. i thought that the way that conchu's voice kind of came out of nowhere the kind of 
like uh what's the word rapport he had or the little mm-hmm. the way that he had this way of talking to Mark and talking mm-hmm. oh the idiot's in charge again just reminded me of Venom and Eddie Brock and their weird yeah. little like yeah. odd couple thing and I think that gosh what is what else is coming out or came out recently that I was making that same comparison to no because I'm like, what what recently came out? We had Eternals, Shang-Chi, No Way Home. Yeah. We've been watching X-Men. Is there somebody in X-Men who does like X talk to somebody through the brain thing? I don't think so. Maybe it was Venom and Mark was saying that he hated it so much that it was like this. Ugh, whatever. Anyway, we'll cut this part. <laughs> but yeah, the the way that Kanshu was talking just just gave me that vibe and I wonder if the writers were either consciously or subconsciously influenced by that because I feel like that is almost becoming a trope of its own where you know you have the you know the voice in the head that is talking to you and there is a I guess a temptation now to kind of lean into the the absurdity of that and yeah treat it as like you know this isn't like some terrifying whisper in the night and it's it's actually something that's kind of like yeah he lives there all the time you're gonna have in jokes or you know ways of talking that are unique to that relationship yeah no I think you're really onto something and I think like you know for example like when we look back at genre films from like a certain period we'll be like oh, you know, everybody was taking, you know, this certain mm-hmm. shot of superheroes or, like, all the superheroes, like, had this certain, like, romance story or this certain way of, like, talking. And I absolutely think that, like, in 10 years, the, like, the quippy voice in your head mm-hmm. will seem like a late 10s, early 20s thing that like someone is gonna be like okay venom came out in 2018 then there's venom 2 then there's this you know there's also the way deadpool talks there's also the Mm -hmm. way other people might hear voices and that all these people are being influenced by each other and making a trope of like this is how the voice in your head in genre films in this decade sounds completely agree with that um something i want to address is One of my favorite jokes of all time, I mean, I'm going to watch the episode again, but partially just for this part, which is when, um, remind me Ethan Hawke's name? Arthur Harrow. Arthur Harrow. So he's having the discussion, and so he's trying to explain the different gods and their relationship to us on Earth. And at one point, he's like, yes, so you must understand, you know, this so-and-so is their avatar. And he was like, "Uh, yes, uh, you know, blue people. And he's like, no. And he's like, yeah, hit film. Love that film. And he's like, no, I'm not talking about that. He's like, oh, yeah, you mean the anime? And he's like, no, no, follow me, Avatar, stick with me. And it just, it was really exciting to me to see that Disney let the writers have such a dumb, minuscule joke. Because I think, like, when Disney writing, you know, when Disney is punching up, especially their, like, major films, they are looking for, like huge jokes you know what I mean like they're sending these scripts over and over and doing like punch it up and punch it up and punch it up and to me I almost thought it was more effective and more fun as a viewer to have this like sort of like micro punching you know what I mean where it just is like this character is so silly and so speedy with his reactions like 
I don't think anyone would say Stephen Grant isn't like smart no, or quippy. He clearly is. He just is, you know, sort of strange and nerdy. But yeah, the idea that he just is talking about, yeah, oh yeah, love that film. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I, and even that is like a microscopic, like, oh, this guy has potentially seen a lot of TV and movies, maybe because he stays awake, home alone at night all the time. And so he has seen Avatar, The Last Airbender. And Avatar, the blue people who get colonized by space. And that was just so, so great to me. I just, I was like endlessly impressed by the script and how it just absolutely like trotted along. I thought that was such a funny moment. And I also loved that they were able to slip in what felt very much like foreshadowing or things that felt significant, but I couldn't quite explain why in the moment one of the ones that I'm thinking about is where he's like you know in the basement doing inventory with his boss because he's in trouble and he's correcting her and it's like you know oh I found a big error on the poster like there's you know that only seven gods on it but there's meant to be nine and I'm like I'm betting the other two are Konshu and Amit and they're missing from the poster because you know something happened and you know they're that's or what if they walked themselves off the poster? You know, what if Khonshu's like, I don't like being on that poster. And then she's like, I'm not staying on the poster. And, you know, maybe they're a little voices odd couple and they hate being in the museum and get that totem of me away from here. Yeah. And I'm I'm so curious how they're going to talk about the, the kind. I mean, because I'm assuming that Arthur Harrow is to Amit what Mark Spector is to Khonshu, that he is the avatar of Amit in the same way. And I'm wondering how, because I assume at some point we'll get some backstory of how that came to be. And I wonder if it involves time travel or if it is somehow set in the present day, but in an archaeological site. Yeah. But if it does involve time travel, I could see, you know, that somehow in like a back to the future picture kind of way they got erased from the poster because of the events yes. that happened and then you yes. know becoming these human avatars or it bought in inhabiting human avatars yes i i completely agree okay so i would like to speculate what we think is going to happen yes. in the next five episodes and so or what you would like to see happen either is fine with me okay so What I think in terms of storyboarding, I think what has to happen in the next episode is obviously going to be, you know, what we love in the hero's journey, the refusal of the call, Mm -hmm. which is going to be Stephen is going to try to have to have a conversation with Mark. I also love that they have to talk in mirrors. I think it is otherwise so hard to have one person talk to themselves. I would love to see Oscar Isaac be doing character switching in sort of one body and being, I'm doing this. And what are you doing this? What are you doing this? Um, but I think the mirrors as one, a really great visual effect. And two, I'm sure so much easier for the actor. Mm-hmm. Um, they did that for Green Goblin too. Although yes. we did get to see Willem Dafoe's face change as he, oh, and oh, I he is the gold standard. He is the gold standard. And I, he did it so masterfully. And I, I, but I do have faith that Oscar Isaac can do it. Yeah. So I think 
in the refusal of the call, I am going, I'm curious to see if then we're going to have to see some of Mark Spector's perspective Mm -hmm. to be like, okay, he has refused the call. So here's what I have to do to manipulate what's left of his body. And so I would really like to see, okay, so I know I said I want the whole thing to be in Stephen Grant's perspective, but I think I want the whole thing to be Stephen Grant's story. But then I say, episode two, Stephen Grant refuses the call. We go back to Mark Spector's story. How does Mark Spector manipulate that refusal? Episode three, Stephen Grant finds out and he is trying to kick um, Mark Spector and Moon Knight out of his body. He's getting so scared. He's doubling down on the tie downs. Episode four, something crazy happens. Maybe it's Dr. Doom. Maybe something else you realize you're in way over your head. You no longer have to refuse the call. The call has come to you. You step into it. Then he becomes... So then we see it's episode four. Stephen Grant becomes Moon Knight. He decides, like, I am the hero of my own story. Then he becomes, like, a master and, you know, starts defeating villains. But then he's like, well, if I'm the hero and Mark Spector is the hero, episode five is... We can't both be heroes because we're occupying the same body. One of us gets to own the body. So episode five is who battling it out for the body. Then episode six, and this is where it's Stephen Grant's main story. Stephen wins. So he defeats the bad guy. Moon Knight, Konshu, everybody gives him the respect. He is now the primary body occupant and Mark Spector has been sort of, he's gaining power of his multiple personalities and Mark Spector is sitting on the sidelines waiting to be called for season two. That's my show. Interesting. I love it. I'd watch it. (laughs) I don't know if I've thought through quite on an episode by episode level, but I completely agree. I think that I would honestly love to see episode two open from Mark Spector's perspective that we get kind of the, you know, so we saw several times in this episode, what happens when Stephen Grant wakes up, he undoes his ankle restraint, he checks the tape on the door. I want to see what it looks like when Mark Spector wakes up in that bed, how he just physically moves through the space differently, changes those things how yes. he, you know, tears off the ankle restraint, you know, Ooh. takes off the tape, but then is so careful to replace the tape when he goes back to bed yes. so that Stephen Grant yes. can't tell the difference. I want to yes. see his perspective, his rapport with Moon Knight, how he deals yes. with these things, yes. you know, how what he's plotting, I guess, in terms of how to deal with Arthur Harrow, answering some of those questions. Oh, mm-hmm. here's what I was going to say before that I forgot. Okay. I think one of the kind of unsolved mysteries of the pilot structure to me was what is the inciting incident because from Stephen Grant's mm-hmm. perspective it's he starts waking up in the middle of when Mark Spector is supposed to have the body but why mm-hmm. is that happening is that just happenstance like what is the inciting incident from Mark Spector's point of view where does the yes. story begin yes. and I I do recognize that in the superhero genre a lot of times happenstance is kind of the inciting incident like 
Peter Parker gets bit by a radioactive spider and it could have happened to anyone. And I think that's where we get kind of the what if series is like, what if, you know, the, I always want to call them Reavers, but I'm pretty sure that's Firefly. The Ravagers had picked up T'Challa instead of Peter Quill, you know, that kind of. Yes. Changing that little, the the chance aspect of it. And so I do. But I also think. I think part of the problem when you step into the show and in the everyday is that I agree. I had kind of wondered what the inciting incident was because I'm like, okay, so why had he never, why did he never miss work? Mm -hmm. Why did he never lost a day before? Mm -hmm. Why did he never notice that cell phone? Why did nobody else mention before literally just this week that he's gone in multiple times to the pet store? Like presumably that if this has been happening for years and years, has Mark Spector and Moon Knight always occupied you? And for years you didn't notice right or like did they just become relit when i'm gonna call him ethan hawk to, i'm sorry yeah. i have to write this down for next episode when ethan hawk comes and says like it's time for me to start sucking souls baby daddy's hungry for souls yeah i don't know and i it did make me wonder because the way that his boss talks to him makes it sound like he's worked there for you know not a short amount of time like she knows him they have a relationship but at the same time he clearly has been going into work as Mark Spector Mark Spector is the one who set the date with the co-worker because Stephen Grant doesn't remember it has his boss not noticed that sometimes he's a different personality and if that's the case and he has been going in as Mark Spector has Mark Spector been wearing the Stephen Grant name tag and pretending to be Stephen Grant while he's Mark Spector is Mark Spector aware of the multiple personality yes. thing and is conscious yes. of what Stephen Grant is like? So many questions. And I feel like I hope they have to answer those as the show goes on. And so I really want to yes. see a second episode from Mark Spector's perspective of he's in control. We can tell he's in control because he physically acts so different. And yet he's still going to work as Stephen Grant. I think that would be yes. so interesting. I also am so curious about Layla as a character and I'm wondering if she, I feel like she has to come in in episode two and I think that will kind of create the call to action of, you know, okay, is Stephen Grant going to go with her, let's say to Egypt and he has to decide when he's in control of the body, am I going to accept this journey that Mark Spector needs to be on, but I am just, I'm just Stephen Grant. I want to stay Stephen Grant. I don't want to deal with Mark Spector. So yes. I think yes, I think those are great questions and they bring up so many more questions for me because when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, okay, yes, I do actually, my theory was that Mark Spector knows he's Stephen Grant. He dresses up like Stephen Grant and does Stephen Grant's things. But then I'm like, if he's so in control, one, he's not in control enough where he could overcome him in the bathroom with the dog. So Stephen Grant still has some, like, ultimate power over him. And two, why is that? Like, why is he in control, but not that in control? And if he's in control sometimes, why hasn't he been picking up Layla's calls? To me, that's another big question. Although, I guess an answer to that could be that he is laying low. Like, he did something bad in Egypt several months ago because she said you haven't answered in months so presumably that's when he got possessed 
by Moon Knight and maybe he is sometimes conscious that he is pretending to be Stephen Grant as an alias and other times is so caught up in it that he is literally Stephen Grant is not not even aware that he's Mark Spector yes Yes, I can't wait to find out more about Mark Spector. Now you got you. I'm all in. Mark Spector's got to be the next episode. Be is he funny? I Does he fuck? So. You know what I mean? I like, because it seems like Stephen Grant doesn't fuck. He didn't really even know about it. I think. But I'm like, what if Mark Spector is spoofing as Stephen Grant, and he fucks? Because somebody asked her out on a date. Somebody asked her on a date. And she thought it was Steven. Yeah. So that's what made me think. Mark spoofed as Steven. He was like, well, somebody's got to ask. I I am so curious. I'm so excited. I Let's see. What do I think is going to happen the rest of the season? They're going to end up back in Egypt. I'm just going on the trailers. There's going to be big purple light shooting out of the top of the pyramid. Uh-huh. But I agree. I think that the the character's emotional journey I think is going to be very similar to what you described of like you know he's going to have to try and prove I think in the way that he's constantly trying to prove to his boss and the security guard and girls he goes on dates with but he's not a loser he's not the idiot in control I think he's going to have to prove the same thing to Konshu that he's not the idiot that he can be trusted that like he is capable of being the hero as much as Mark is. And I think that's going to be kind of the resolution of that journey. And I do think the question of then, okay, who gets the body is going to maybe be lingering into, you know, the end of the season, because I think that to kill Stephen Grant would be so sad because he kind of is his own person now. And yet at the same time, I think that, you know, I don't know, maybe he'll just, maybe he and, maybe he and Mark will, and that he'll share the memories of both and the personality traits of Steven. I don't know. Because having multiple personalities is such an integral part of Moon Knight's character, I don't know if they can reconcile that because if he ever shows up in a movie, he still has to be, you know, the character from the comics who has multiple personalities and that's just his kind of, his Achilles heel is that sometimes he's Steven and he doesn't know what's going on. Totally. I think, I think that they will, I think they're setting him up to join the MCU in part because I think that with the Black Knight, Dane Whitman, who we saw at the end of Eternals, him getting the sword, and we heard Mahershala Ali's voice as Blade, and the the third part of that trifecta is Moon Knight, and so I think that we will get a team of the three of them, I hope. But that would be so good. I mean, that would be stacked. That is another question, too, though, is when they introduce him in a movie, are people going to be expected to have seen the show? And I think that they're kind of edging into that territory with Multiverse of Madness, and they want us to have seen WandaVision. And I think that that is dangerous because, on the one hand, for people like us, it works and it's the literal only reason I have a Disney Plus subscription is to watch Marvel shows and I will continue shelling out my nine ninety nine a month until the day they stop producing content. But I think a lot of people aren't 
interested. And I, I think it raises the barrier to entry. And for people, you know, like my cousin who is kind of vaguely interested, but feels like there's a barrier to entry, you know, she's not, if she goes and sees Multiverse of Madness and feels like, oh, there's all this stuff that I'm supposed to have known and this movie doesn't make sense without it, she's not going to go see another Marvel movie. And so I really hope that if they do introduce Moon Knight into the MCU, that they kind of take a leaf out of their own book from Avengers and the way that they were able to introduce each character in such a, you know, tight little intro package where, you know, it helped if you had seen Iron Man and seen Hulk and well, not so much for Hulk because they recast him, but, you know, seen Captain Mm -hmm. America and that you could have some context for when those characters show up. But they introduced them well enough in the first 15 minutes of that movie that even if you hadn't seen the standalone film, you still were like, okay, I pretty much know who Captain America is. Yes, that's what I was going to say, is that I think they actually have set a pretty good precedent, you know, like for Spider-Man No Way Home. It's Mm -hmm. like you don't have to have seen the other movies, but you understand like when Doc Ock comes, this is what his role is. And if you want to know more about him, revisit this other property from 20 years ago and like they did the same thing with Black Panther. Like, he gets two introductions. He gets introduced into Civil War. And then he gets introduced again into his own property. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, that kind of happens again. Um, oh, I just had another example. I don't know. Like, Ant-Man is kind of mul- introduced multiple times. Oh, Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man is introduced first in Civil in War. Civil War, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he's introduced into his own property. And... You know, I think obviously it it helps to have seen it, but it, you know, is really, they do a really good job of the first 10 minutes of like, here's who they are, here's what they've done. If you want to know more, here's what Black Panther did when somebody killed his dad. I think that that's a good point. And maybe I'm not giving Disney enough credit. Maybe I need to have more faith. I do think Multiverse of Madness is going to have to require immense precedence. But I think that is like the one movie where I'm like, they are going to get such great payoff from that. Hopefully that you can kind of just write it off as like, this movie is not for you. This movie is for the fans. (laughs) This movie is for the fans. Kevin Feige has been working on this for 20 years. We've finally done it. We've got literally the whole gang back together we're going to go crazy. Going to go crazy. I can't wait. I truly can't wait. And we get Patrick Stewart. So. Oh, my God. I and hope Daniel that... Radcliffe, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully Magneto, too. I want to see him. I need them to reboot the X-Men franchise so that they can make him a hero. That I is agree. the hill I will die on. Yeah. Yeah. No, his story needs some retconning. Mm-hmm. And they can well, stop producing Dark Phoenix movies. That would be excellent. Oh my god. No, she can yeet herself <laughs> off the planet 616 or whatever she's freaking from. Can pull an Icarus. <laughs> Take 12 and a half years to fly into the sun. I think that's the best math. The worst part is that she would just repopulate herself. No matter how much she yeets herself, she's always going to get the unyeet. Yeah. She was created with solar radiation, right? She'd be fine in the sun. Uh, oh my god. Um, I'm also excited for when we get to talk about Fantastic Four because Ben Grimm, another Jewish character who is he is a golem. He's a golem. He did they. Oh, 
his whole personality is about struggling with the fact that he's now a giant pile of rocks. He needs to fucking talk to his rabbi or the guy at the deli counter. I don't care. Someone who can tell him, you're a Jewish legend. Like, you know, you're the protector. Gotta be part of the story. I can't wait. I think I've seen Fantastic Four once when they came out, like as a child, and I've never seen them again. It's hilarious. I rewatched the 2005 one not too long ago, and wow, young Chris Evans. All I'll say. Skinnier. Way skinnier. Way skinnier. Way douchier. It was beautiful. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay, we should wrap it up. We should wrap it up. Okay, Rebecca, do you have anything you'd like to plug? I do, actually, because I got on this same Moon Knight soapbox and tippy-tappied some little words out, and I have an article out. It's in a publication called Hey Alma. Go to heyalma.com, H-E-Y-A-L-M-A. And you can also find them on Instagram. And it's an article about why Moon Knight is the Jewish hero we deserve. Hopefully. Excellent. Excellent. Do you want to plug your show socials or oh, any yeah. your tweets or anything? Yeah. I'm on uh, social media as at Glazer Donut. G-L-A-Z-E-R Donut without the O-U-G-H just D-O-N-U-T. And uh, that's instagram twitter which i almost never use and tiktok which i also only really use for scrolling doing scrolling and sending friends memes but sometimes i post we'll see excellent um i would just like to plug my instagram and twitter um i'm rachel baldwin 56 on all the things i'm also on tiktok maybe we'll uh post a little short of our pod here on there um Additionally, check out the back catalog of Girls Off the Rails. Um, that's my other podcast where I talk about theme park rides and major IPs. I'm sure you'll find a lot of crossover content over there. And uh, I think that's it. If you're ever in Denver, uh, let me know. Check me out at, uh, I don't know, Rise Comedy on Thursday nights. Who the hell knows? We're goofing and boofing as frequently as we can. Um, oh, and if you know anybody who needs a roommate in L.A., let me know. <laughs> well, uh, I think that's it. Thanks for listening to Moon Knight, everybody. That'll we'll do talk it. to you next week. Bye. Bye. It's all genre to me. We're going to need a bigger podcast. We could have been killed or worse, podcasted. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Ah, oh, yeah. Why is all the podcasts gone?